Good morning again, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. This is Dave McGuire with another Sunday School lesson on the 20th of September 2020. Uh, we're nearing the end of our series on apologetics uh, over the next or uh, over the course of this week and the next week we'll finish up uh, the current series and then we'll transition to a series on biblical counseling uh, for a couple of weeks so looking forward to that um, please uh, continue to uh, provide feedback on what you like about uh, what we're doing here and um, what you think uh, could be different uh, it's all uh, helpful to us um, last week we spent time establishing uh, that scripture is sufficient, is clear, authoritative, and necessary. If scripture is indeed all of these things, uh, spoiler alert, it is, then we very well must listen when the Bible has answers regarding life, the universe, and everything. Within those three categories lie truths about God, man, and sin. And that's what we're going to be discussing over the final two weeks of this series. Today, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we ask that you would help us to open our minds to the truths that you have um, revealed about yourself in Scripture. Uh, we trust that you will help us to um, expand our understanding of who you are uh, in our finite and limited way, uh, that we will briefly glimpse um, how wonderful and worthy of praise uh, your character is, um, and that we will see the scriptures uh, through a new lens, um, fully invested in your uh, greatness and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Studying God, uh, what he says about himself, his immutable attributes, his mind, is largely, unfortunately, ignored in the broader American church. The God we seek to defend through apologetics is virtually unknown to us. We are called to study God. Psalm 119.97 says compellingly, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. God's law is an outgrowth of his character. We are called to love the character, his character, and to meditate upon it. But when we study God, we must keep in mind that God is infinite and we are finite. God is knowable to us only in what he reveals. We should not then go searching for some secret about God that no one else knows. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. For the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we, may, that we may do all the words of the law. I had a boss once who grew up Catholic but had been LDS for quite some time. Inherent to their belief is that no knowledge is secret forever. This is directly contradicted by scripture and lets us know that there is knowledge that is unique to God. And as he desired us to become aware, he made more of himself known to us. From an apologetic perspective, we're not going to be getting into some of the headier concepts, but rather the basic theological concepts that we must follow um, in order to have a, a fruitful discussion of the Christian worldview. 
Polythe polytheism is the default religion of the human heart. This stems from self-worship, really. It is absorbed with the idea that the gods are simply better versions of me. In contrast, the major solo theistic religions, uh, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, states that God is a singular being without distinction. The God of the Bible, Jehovah, is by contrast both three and one. This is God's triune nature. The Trinity is one of the most difficult concepts for anyone, let alone an unbeliever, to grasp. There is nothing we can compare it to that is within our realm of experience. Analogies are entirely unsatisfactory. We've all heard them. Shamrocks, the three states of water, the three parts of an egg. We believe in the Trinity because scripture tells us it is so. We don't believe it because it makes perfect sense to us. While it is logical, as we'll see, uh, it is not inherently simple. It is a, a difficult concept. One of the ways I've found helpful in discussing the Trinity is not in describing its essence, as I said above, that's always going to fall short when we get into analogy, but rather in discussing the natural and necessary consequences of the Trinity. If there was a time before creation where God was by himself for eternity, there was a time before God could have loved another. Additionally, there would have been a time before God was in community with another being. These things would fundamentally alter God when they became realities to him, when he created something, whether it was uh, another God or whether it was man. And thus, the verses about God being the same from everlasting to everlasting would not be accurate. Thus, the desire for community and the desire for perfect love that we see in the God of the Bible is a natural outgrowth of a community and love that has existed perfectly for all eternity. And our desire for those things is a reflection of our being made in God's image. Now that we've discussed the necessity of the Trinity, let's talk about a few aspects of it. God is equally three and one. He is not more one than he is three, and he is not more three than he is one. This is where we speak of God's essence, essential oneness and essential threeness. God in his oneness thinks, feels, and knows as one. Yet, as Farnham in the book, Every Believer Confident that we've been going through, Jesus cried out on the cross not to himself, but to his Father, whom he addressed by name. Still, both Father and Son are God. The Father is God. We see this in Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son is called God and calls himself God in John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Holy Spirit is equated with God in Acts and searches the mind of God in 1 Corinthians. Now, let's look at the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah 44. Thus, 
says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Is this then contradictory to the statement that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God? Not at all. It's entirely logically consistent with Christian theology, and it's why we must be very precise with our terms. We affirm that God is one in essence, but three distinct persons. We should acknowledge that the Trinity is a paradox. This means that it is something that is very difficult, but not impossible to reconcile logically. Herman Bavink writes, the persons of the Trinity, though distinct, are not separate. They share the same essence, one in essence, the same being. They are not separated by time or space or anything else. They all share in the same divine nature and perfections. It is one and the same divine nature that exists in each person individually and in all of them collectively. God's being is not an abstract unity or concept, but a fullness of being, an infinite abundance of life, whose diversity, so far from diminishing the unity, unfolds it to its fullest extent. Next, God is absolute and personal. The God of Christianity is a personal, rational, and self-conscious in that he is aware of himself and who he is, not in the negative way we typically think of the term self-conscious. Farnham writes, This is apparent in that God does things that persons do. He creates, he speaks, leads, judges, gives, loves, controls, punishes, wills. He can be pleased, grieved, angered, betrayed, saddened, and appeased. God is personal in that he relates to us. He understands who we are and why we do the things that we do. He communicates with us and responds to us. This gives lie to the concept of pantheism, that is, that God is present in everything, but is not separate from his creation. He is not a force or a concept. He reflects his personal nature in that he pursues those who he created and provides a way for them to reconcile the broken relationship between God and man. When we say that God is absolute, we affirm that, the, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at once. He does not yield his glory to anyone else. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, Try Jesus. If you don't like him, the devil will always take you back. Now, I could devote an entire lesson just to the theological and scriptural mess that is that bumper sticker, but I want to focus on the implication there that Jesus and the devil are somehow equal representatives of a light side and a dark side, both competing for souls and neither with a clear advantage. No, God alone is uncreated and eternal. All creation, both natural and supernatural, is created and is finite. Nothing else is like God. Finally, at least final for our purposes here, God is self-existing. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything. This is what we call the aseity of God. The ancient Greek and Roman gods regularly needed something from one another or something from man. 
On the contrary, the God of, of Christianity needs nothing from us, not worship, not love. We, on the other hand, live and move and have our being in him. That's Acts 17, 28. A solo theistic God, should he desire community, must then create beings with which to commune. Should he desire to love another, he must create another being to love. In other words, a solo theistic God needs something from his creation. Our God, by contrast, existed for all eternity, like we talked about above, in perfect community within the Godhead, perfectly loving the other persons of the Trinity. It was through this perfect love, so overflowing, that we were created, not because God needed something from us. Farnham writes, The fact that God created a world that he knew would rebel against him and eternally chose to save unworthy sinners by the death of the Son shows that at his essence, God gives and loves for the good of others and for his glory. It is this God who pours out his love for his Son onto us whom we share and defend with our apologetic. Knowing and sharing these attributes of God will help us combat deism I can't believe in a God who would create a universe and then walk away when it falls apart. It helps us to combat the problem of suffering. I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about other people's suffering. We can, through our affirmation of the reality of who God says he is, state, I don't believe in that God either. Let me tell you about the God of the Bible. Make that your prayer this week, Christian, that the Lord would bring someone into your life whom you could share and defend your faith with. Amen.